Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. In 2015, she won the National Telstra Business Women's Award, the Australian Financial Review's Boss Magazine Young Executive of the Year, and in the following year was named in the Westpac 100 Women of Influence list. Dr Catherine Ball is nearly as nerdy a nerd as you could find. Her mum imparted a strong sense of independence on her and David Attenborough gave her a passion for planet Earth and these two virtues continue to serve her in her work today. With a background as an environmental scientist, Catherine talks about her latest passion project called She Flies. She aims to reach over 100,000 Australian women and girls by the year 2020. And let's just say by the end of this conversation, I feel inspired to go out and buy a drone and learn how to fly it. We talk about why all of us need to embrace technology. Catherine is passionate, energetic, and her drive for change is absolutely engaging. And I can assure you that by the end of this conversation, you will be wanting to unleash your own inner nerd. So soak up all the energy that is Catherine Ball. Catherine, welcome to the studio. Great to have you here. Thank you. This is a very awesome studio. I really like this. It's so natural and just really comfortable. Like we just have a chat with big microphones in front of us. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like the stand. People who right. have to picture the stands are betwixt our thighs. Not it's that you like... can see it, but yeah, it's like don't move a muscle, but <laughs> be really comfortable. <laughs> just going to move my leg and not kick it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, you've been described as a high-flying scientist. How did you mm. get into that world of of uh, expertise and career, like mm. what what set you on that tra- trajectory? I think there's some of, you know, I, I ask this quite a lot actually and someone said to me the other day, you know, so what is it that drives you? And I'm like, look, I'd need to have some serious therapy to really work out what that is and I've not had time to investigate that yet. Though I'm a big believer in a, a quote from a Michael Crichton novel called Prey where he says, trying to understand how your own brain works is like trying to bite your own teeth. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, I think I, I look back across memories and one of my earliest memories was of the 1984 famine in Ethiopia and it's still kicks me now to even talk about it and think about it. And um, I remember asking my mum, you know, how can people be starving like this? I just couldn't compute um, what was what I was seeing. And that led, of course, to the live aid thing, you know, the feed the world. It was a really a big um, form of conversation. And the problem that we have now, if you go to the news sites right now, we have famine affecting, you know, over 20 million people um, in East Africa at the moment, right now, today, people are still starving. And so I look at this 32 years later and think, we haven't cracked it. Mm. So, I mean, originally, I was wanting to do medicine because I wanted to go out and directly help people in the field. But then I um, I did um, my gap year in Zambia um, and I realised that you can't vaccinate against famine. You know, you need to actually look at how the world is working and how human populations are interacting with the environment to try and actually mitigate some of that sheer poverty. Um, and, you know, we have enough food on this planet. We have a billion people obese and a billion people starving. And it's not about production. It's about logistics. Um, and so I guess I fell in love with Mother Earth through David Attenborough documentaries. Mm, he was my third parent. Oh, my gosh. 
There was an oil spill in the 90s up in the in the Shetland Islands and it was the Brer oil spill and I wrote to this programme saying, can I, can I please go and help clean up the seabirds and get involved in this, that and the other. I joined Greenpeace when I was 13 for my 13th birthday and I got the BBC Wildlife magazine as a subscription. Now you see, look at me and most of the friends I went to school with would have just said that I was just a weird geek but I just, I fell in love with these ideas of parts of the planet that I'd never seen. Um, and I remember one of my favourite things out of that BBC Wildlife magazine is they had a series of prints um, at the Christmas edition and there was one of this really beautiful iceberg with these penguins on it. And the colour of the ice was blue. Now, I'd never conceived in my mind that ice could be blue. Mm. Um, and I've never, I'd never seen blue ice myself until about 2013 when I went up Kilimanjaro and dragged 10 other people up with me. Um, and we saw the cathedrals of the glaciers that still remain on the top of Kilimanjaro and the ice was blue. Um, and so I guess I've always, I don't know, there's lots of little things that have tied into this idea of, you know, environmental science and trying to understand the world. And um, people might say I'm a bit of a control freak and I need to understand everything. <laughs> um, but, um, but no, th that love of the unknown that's, you know, you know, still reachable and touchable here. I mean, we spend a lot of time gazing at the stars and getting very excited about Mars. And, and I think that's absolutely right. But if we can't actually understand our own systems on this planet, there's no way we're terraforming on another planet anytime soon. There are still more facts known about the surface of Jupiter than we know of our deep ocean trenches. Um, and so, you know, there's still so much to discover on this planet that, um, that I almost wish I was 18 again making those decisions about what to do at university. It sounds like you've got so much inquiry, mm. <laughs> more, more than a lifetime's <laughs> kind of word. So you, you obviously reside here in Australia, but you haven't always, no. you know, obviously with that accent, <laughs> um, have grown up in, in the UK. Yeah. Back in your childhood, which of your kind of parenting styles influenced you the most? Mm. Well, my parents divorced when I was nine years old, so my dad pretty much wasn't part of my life from then onwards. Um, so my mum graduated as a law student, as a mature student, so I, she was actually still studying at university during and up to up to enduring the divorce. I, I remember going along with her once to sit in lectures because it was a, a my, my year at school had got the day off and there was no one to babysit me. So I went in and I felt very much like Doogie Howser MD. You know, there was me, the 12-year-old <laughs> law student That's at Warwick right. University. Um, and so I always, I just saw my mum working so hard and, and she's always had such a great work ethic. And the thing with my mum is that she's just been 100%, 1,000% supportive of me. One of, one of our favourite expressions is see him off, Kath, you know, go and go and get it done and um, you know she you know refinanced the house so I could finish my PhD she you know backed me a thousand percent and I saw her working hard and I saw her struggling and, and she sacrificed a lot for us and I suppose one piece of advice that she gave me that's always stayed with me is if you're going to have children with someone be prepared to raise them on your own Mm. Um, and I don't know if that's just the, the, the legal sort of, pre, you know, prepare for the worst but expect the best, you know, which I think is very pragmatic, especially in changeable times. Um, but, yeah, I, I always had this idea of independence being the greatest gift I could give myself, um, both financial and emotional and um, geographical independence. Um, so I guess that came from the unerring belief that my mother had that, that I had the ability to do that. Um, and, yeah, it was greatly encouraged. I love that phrase, just go out and do it. Yeah, just go do out and do it. it. And, uh, and obviously that love and that passion of, of learning and, and being inquisitive about the world, mm. world at large, um, kind of fed into that. Mm. Uh, why Australia? Well, my mum actually says one of the worst days of her life was when she put me on the plane to Australia, bless her. And it's, you know, you get you get guilt-ridden. Look, the GFC in the UK, I don't know how much many people in Australia really actually saw how bad it was in the UK. We literally, you know, I was working as an environmental consultant. I'd literally been two years out of my PhD and everything stopped. 
I mean, everything stopped. There was a run on the bank at Northern Rock. People were running on the bank. I mean, we've never experienced stuff like this in Australia. We were in negative, you know, economic statistics to make you weep. People couldn't get mortgages. People couldn't, people literally couldn't move their credit. There was a credit crunch. You literally couldn't refinance to survive. So people were losing their jobs and then losing their houses and things were literally falling over. I still had a bucket load of debt from my PhD. I came out of my PhD with about £50,000 worth of debt. It's about 100000 Aussie. Mm. Um, just because I'd had to finance and look after all my... I'd had to borrow all the way through from the age of 19 to the age of 28, basically, to live, even though I worked two jobs as well. Um, And it was a big moment of mine of, this ain't going to work. You know, I was in London and... Uh, you know, obviously I hadn't had that daddy's network to help me. I hadn't gone to private school. And you did see a huge difference to those that had uh, an, a pre-built, you know, structure of support of they, mummy and daddy could pay their rent or, you know, that they were living on a trust fund. I remember a friend of mine went for an interview in London in around about the same time. And I think it was a creative job in the film industry to do with PR. And the, the salary was £13,000. Now, you can't live in London on £13,000. You can barely make it on £26,000, I'd suggest. And the guy in the interview said to my friend, yes, it's difficult without a trust fund, isn't it? And I was just like, I am from a single parent family in the Midlands. I have gone to university, whereas no one else in my family ever had it as, you know, an 18 year old. My mum had obviously done it as a mature student. My aunt had been through teacher training college um, and another aunt had gone uh, to do chemistry at university again. But I was like, this, I'm not supposed to be here. You ever get that where you stand there and you go... You look at my statistics and you look at what I, what I want to do with my life and it's not for me. This isn't a path that, that's actually there. None of my friends from school were going through it. No, no one that I knew was taking gap years to Africa and then trying to you know, do science degrees. And I felt incredibly isolated in London. I had some great friends there, don't get me wrong. But when you look at your opportunities for career path and there are literally nothing and you're staring bankruptcy and failure in the face... Well, failure for me is not an option to nick a term mm. from Apollo 13 or whatever. It's also not what we um, expect it's after a PhD, no, right? Like exactly. we get told that uh, education is going to be a pathway. They so sell it, it sounds to you, like right? you, uh, mm-hmm. you got to that point. You've put in the hard yards. You've got mm-hmm. into debt. You've done mm-hmm. the t- two jobs to get through and the PhD will be the, the ticket to yeah. freedom. And it sounds like that wasn't your experience. Well, it was my ticket to freedom, but it was my ticket to international freedom. Right. It was not my ticket to staying in London freedom. Mm. You know, I look at it, I think, could I have got two bar jobs? Could I have forced myself? Could I have tried? Um, That was the second option. My first option was, right, recently single, desperately in need for some of those new horizons that I always used to dream about when I was a kid. And I thought, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to. Um, and I thought I'll go, I'll go somewhere for about a year or two years, wait for the UK to warm back up again, get some cracking stuff on my CV, show my international experience and have something different to offer in an interview situation um, and then I'll come back. Mm-hmm. Well, that was seven years ago, a couple of weeks ago, it was seven years. Um, so my company that I worked for was a global consulting company and so I said to one of the lovely HR ladies that I'd got to know, find me something, anything. So London were looking at hiring me but couldn't because there was a hiring freeze because one of the directors was leaving. Austin, Texas were looking at taking me on board inside their water unit, which would have been so boring, um, but it would have at least been a job. Um, and then I got offered Perth, Western Australia to work on what is effect- what was effectively the world's largest environmental monitoring program in the Southern Hemisphere at the time. And in fact, the largest environmental monitoring program that I've ever heard of, which was the Gorgon Marine Monitoring Program. So that would have been working as a consultant to the oil and gas company. And of course, the first rip that goes through me is oil and gas company. You know, I did an environmental environment. science degree. <laughs> yes. Is that really 
something that I want to work in. And then I realised what the project was about. And it was probably the largest amount of money given to scientific and consulting institutions to have independent scientific rigour around the impacts of this particular project. Um, And when I realised actually they were all scientists, they were all PhDs, they all had academic credentials, the people that were working on the science behind this project, I was like, well, this this actually, I can sleep at night and do this. Mm. Um, And so I got on a plane to Perth where I knew no one with 40 kilos of luggage, um, and I left, and I took that leap. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. That fierce independence, obviously, that your mother had instigated oh, into you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I was, it was, it was, the UK was an impossible situation, and, and I, you know, I can't explain it to people well enough, really, in that the level of fear and uncertainty that was in every meeting, in every conversation, it absolutely pervaded the entire country that everything was stopping and falling over. And I, I honestly have never experienced that kind of economic shutdown before. Um, and, you know, the people that started it in the banks and, you know, the big financial institutions... They, well, they had criminal charges going against them, didn't they? People lost their knighthoods, people were getting death threats. I mean, that, there was a reason why, because the suffering was real and the poverty was coming back. I mean, food banks in Aberdeen, you know, yeah. were the first ones to kick in again because of the gas industry slowing down in the North Sea. You know, food banks becoming a part of, like, average people's lives. We're not talking about people that were, you know, on the dole or in social housing that you'd expect to be the first people to take the hit. These were people who had had great jobs, lived in good houses, you know, people that, you know, people you'd call upper middle class or middle class going to food banks. Mm. Um, it's It's still... You're right. It's a devastation it's that we awful. didn't experience here in mm-hmm. Australia and, and really we're only talking 10 years ago, nine years ago, yeah. like not not far at all um, in our lifetime. So coming over to Perth, was there a little bit of a sense of, okay, now this is a spot for me? This is, this is a pathway that I could see myself on? I hated it. Mm. I hated it. I arrived in July and it was freezing and my friend had to pick the ice off her car to come and get me from the airport. And I'd only met her once before at her father's funeral when she was heavily pregnant with the twins that were now three years old. Um, And so this poor woman had volunteered to take me into her house because I knew nobody else in Perth whilst I tried to get myself sorted. I hadn't negotiated my salary properly. I had no idea how expensive Perth was going to be. I was actually probably on about 40k less than I should have been. Um, and and I started struggling financially again. So, you know, it was almost like out of the frying pan and into the fire. Um, it was freezing cold. It was nothing like Neighbours is on the television. No. It was... Um, <laughs> or Baywatch. Or Baywatch. Yeah, yeah, I mean, any of those things. I'm like, come on, where's the beach? You know, yeah. she took me to the beach and it was howling a gale and, I, you know, this sleeting rain in my face. And I was like, I've just left a London summer for this. And at that point, I actually thought, I'm just going to turn around and go back. This, this isn't going to work. And then I thought, no coward you will stay for at least six months to a year and see how it goes and um and I did and I I don't really regret that but Perth for me is um it was four years I was in Perth before I made it over to Brisbane um and it was an exercise for me in how to dodge redundancy again I was literally jumping from project to project I had three or four corporate jobs in Perth I was headhunted or hired into to work on projects that then didn't get funding or stopped Mm -hmm. and then I'd have to find another project and jump again and all the while I was on a 457 visa so I had absolutely no no security of my presence in the country. It was all dependent upon having work. So I actually had had really not actually improved my lot much at all, except I still had that monthly money coming in, except now living in Perth was so expensive, I could barely make ends meet. I almost wanted to get a second job pulling pints in a pub, but I couldn't on a 457 visa. You're only allowed to work the one, one job. Day. So I'm like, I actually was more constrained in what I was trying to do. Um, gosh, you know, 
grass is greener syndrome, that one, yes. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't regret it. I mean, you know, Perth and Western Australia, there's some beautiful parts of the world there. I met my husband there, you know. The, you know, it's helped form and change part of my life in a way that I'd have never really expected it to. I, I, you know, it's performed a lot greater in my life history than it would have probably done if I hadn't met my husband, for sure. One of the areas that uh, that you're really passionate about now, and, and I'm going to ask you in a moment more around technology and, mm. and drones in particular, and we're, we're going to go down that, that rabbit warren, but in the work that I do, I, I do a lot of work going into corporates and organisations and talking to them about change and how they get people on board with the change. And number one in terms of the fear that you can almost see in the whites mm-hmm. of people's eyes is around technology. Mm-hmm. And there is this fear that we get told that technology is going to take our jobs away, it's going to ruin everything, it's going to take away customer service, it's going to, um, like, it's we don't even know how to work it. Um, there's absolute fear. And yet technology is such a big part of your world. Do you see this in the conversations that you have, this kind of fear around technology? And, and how do you bring, because I, and I've heard you speak, you bring such a different perspective to that. Um, how do you counteract that fear? There's a real problem with tech in that people that do tech and are good at tech don't necessarily know how to talk about tech. Um, and I think that with anything that's new, you always get this inertia of change. You always get this brick wall. For myself, I found, I found that I had to leave a traditional corporate paradigm in order to be able to achieve what I wanted to do because the business models and the risk frameworks and the procurement processes that we have, especially in large corporates, are so risk-averse that the chances of you actually getting to do anything new are so slim, so slim. You have to have a big team that really believes in you and a person and a manager that understands that this is a two or three year investment before it really starts, you know, coming up roses. Because there's just that lag time of getting clients to feel happy, empowering and, you know, communicating with people the benefits of technology. But this this fear of robots taking our jobs really is so over-egged. I mean... Of all of the previous three industrial revolutions, employment statistics have only ever gone up. Between the second and the third industrial revolution, employment went from 33% in the States to something like 64%. And, you know, so that's the US statistics for sure. But, um, you know, there's only actually been one job ever removed through the use of technology. And What's that? It's uh, the lift operator. Right. So, you know, you used to get into a lift and someone would be stood there and they that would be the their button. job. They'd go, hello, what floor do you want? And you'd say, I want floor five, please. And they would press, they'd push the jimmy, whatever it was, and get you to floor five. That job doesn't exist anymore. Is that a loss, really, to society? Because you still at hotels and stuff, you know, that are worth their skin, have decent customer service and people that will welcome you. And they just don't have to be in the lift anymore operating that lift thing. You still have lift engineers. You still have lift manufacturers. You still have great technology in lifts now, you know, that's being developed all the time. You now swipe it and just to access to your own floor rather than all the floors, and which is great if you're with one of those people that's really tempted to just press all the buttons at that's once right. when you're in the lift. It's called my uh, five-year-old child. I have been known to do that myself once. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, really the fear is... It's unfounded, but I understand why it happens because things are moving so fast with technology that unless you're actually already ahead of it, you're already behind. Like literally on a weekly basis, I'm watching stuff coming out, which is mind bogglingly awesome. But I see it from my perspective, which has been immersed in this stuff now pretty much my whole life, um, but certainly the last 10 years, um, and especially the last five years with drone technology. So it's um, something that I'm very comfortable with because I understand it and I'm excited by it. And when I don't understand something, I learn more about it. Um, 
there's power in technology. And you know what? Australia is actually leading and using some of this tech in ways that you probably don't even realise is actually happening. Uh, blockchain, for example. People will go, blockchain, what on earth is blockchain? Well, blockchain is a security system that's developed to actually prove point of origin or the identity of a particular thing. So, you know, wonderful work going on by Liana Everledger, for example. She had to leave Australia and go to London to do her job because it was all to do with blood diamonds. And so she had this idea of finding a way that you could actually apply technology to diamonds to prove that they were not blood diamonds. And so you have this proof of provenance. You know where it comes from. Well, we're using that already here in Australia, but can you guess what for? Any I have idea? no idea. Big export. Big export. And in fact, here in Queensland, we've got a wonderful thing now. We've got the airport at Toowoomba, which means that when the sta- when the meat gets loaded at uh, night, it arrives in Shanghai and it's in the restaurants that day in Shanghai that day. Wow. So we're using blockchain technology to prove Aussie beef is Aussie beef. Wow. There yeah. you go. So, you know, there's technology that's being applied to our economy and agriculture in Queensland is now worth mining, worth more than mining. So agriculture is a $6 billion industry, I believe. Um, and, you know, so technically um, it's our, one of our largest sources of export income and will continue to be. And Australia will be the deli counter for Southeast Asia. We may not be mass producing, but we'll be producing the good stuff. And so how do you keep a high dollar value on the good stuff? Well, you have to protect to where it. it comes from, right? Mm. You have to protect the suppliers, protect the supply chain. And how do you do that? Blockchain technology. So you go from blood diamonds to Queensland beef and you wouldn't even think that there's a connection, but that's what technology does. It doesn't care, you know, what you apply it to. It's just there to assist. Um, so, so inquisitive yeah. nature and really I love where you kind of said is you actually need to be ahead of the technology. Mm. If you don't know about it, then then get in and learn mm. it um, mm. and get curious about it. And it might be that it's technology that's in a whole other industry from yours, but it's something that you could put into place. Well, that's what I did. Well. Yeah, it's what my team and I did over in Western Australia. So we took surveillance aircraft that were being used to look for insurgents in Afghanistan and we looked for turtles instead using that same aircraft. Right. So what we took was a, a piece of technology that already existed but had only been born and used inside a military con- context. And we said, well, you know, can we fly that? Yes, you can. Can we capture this? Yes, you can. Can you get this sort of resolution data? Yes, you can. And so we were able to work out turtle tracks, whether they'd laid a nest, what species the turtle was, because turtles have different flipper patterns <laughs> yeah, <laughs> based right. on what their species is, um, how old the tracks were, obviously, because we were flying on a daily basis. So we were able to do some great, what scientists love to do, environmental scientists in particular, we like to sample our environment without creating bias. So you don't want to physically be there. It's called remote sensing. It's brilliant. We use satellites for it, manned aircraft, helicopters and planes for it. And now we use different kinds of remotely piloted aircraft systems or drones for it. So taking technology from somewhere completely foreign, like, you know, the idea of flying submilitary grade aircraft in Australian skies, but then applying it over into a very convoluted, convoluted and complex airspace over on the western, uh, you know, northwestern shelf of the Pilbara there where they've got all the oil and gas developments. How do you actually do that? Um, well, it takes a lot of planning to do something like that, obviously, but it's not impossible. And you've just got to see that end goal and realise there's, there's lots of different ways to get to that end goal and not be afraid to look at ones that might be a little bit left of field. Mm. But again, corporates and large companies do not swallow this well because again if you can't if you can't understand it you can't rate it if you can't rate it you can't rank it if you can't rank it you don't know what the risks are that you're playing with um, and so innovation per se has always had a huge problem in corporates because there's no KPIs attached to it yeah KPI of we're going to be more innovative well 
how do you even start to actually mm. build that into what we know is the paperwork of daily business inside large corporates? It's so hard. And, very hard. And particularly when they go, we're going to innovate, but don't stuff it up, don't make a mistake, don't get it wrong, mm. but we've got to be ahead of the game. Right? Really not <laughs> they don't remember what life like was like for them when they were three or four, when they were actually true innovators. Our kids mm. are good at this. We lose it. We get it knocked out of us somewhere, and I don't know why. Mm. But all kids start life as scientists, looking at everything from, you know, the leaves on the tree, you know, the leaves that have fallen through to the worms in the mud, through to does this mud pie stick, does that mud pie stick, building sandcastles, you know, engineering at a very young age. We probably all started as engineers when we were building sandcastles and we worked out the difference between dry sand and wet sand, you know, basic material properties. Um, And so for me, unfortunately, you have to find uh, the innovators and the companies that are willing to take a risk. And there's ways to reduce risk and do this at the same time. And Westpac are good at this, Combank are good at this. You know, you create side hubs, you create sideshows effectively, like we do as individuals when we're wanting to do startups. So you ring fence your risk, you spin off a company or you do something to the side of it. So it's not actually part of your core business, which means core business, business as usual can trundle along at low risk and high reward for your shareholders and everything that you need to do. But you've still got a little bit of risk happening and innovation happening, at which there are federal tax breaks that you could take advantage of and all this kind of stuff going on. Um, Co-locating inside universities is a way that a lot of businesses in Europe Mm. are doing this now. So I think in Wageningen University in the engineering department, it's 50% engineering companies and 50% student spaces. And so the students and the businesses are literally working together from when those students are undergraduates. Uh, We don't have that, I don't think, in any of our universities here yet. We have innovation hubs and spaces which are shoved off to the side. But the idea of co-locating of businesses inside the universities is something I'm, I'm talking with Brian Schmidt at ANU about on their industry um, advisory panel at the moment is how do you actually allow innovation to happen both from a business perspective and from a university perspective because universities mm. can sometimes be a little bit resistant uh, to, to business model changing. the academic world and not the practical. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. co-location for me is an absolute key. You've got to get people talking to each other. Yeah, I think it is really key. I have heard... Um, with Suncorp Insurance being talking about that with driverless cars mm. because obviously there's a whole ramification of, well, who's insured and who's got the car and who's driving and who's not driving. And so they want to be at the forefront of the technology so they can set up policies yes. <laughs> that come, um, come about. So there's definitely more and more conversations in that. But, I mean, even just hearing you talk, it... A big part of it is all of us to go back to that three-year-old. It's almost embrace that inner nerd that we all had in that mm-hmm. inquisitive inquiry and let's explore that. Drone technology is a big focus for you mm. um, with all of the stuff that you've kind of looked at. Why drones? Why why circle in on those at the moment? What is it that you're seeing? What are you passionate about? Mm. I think when we did that first project over in Western Australia and I saw the photographs that we got from it, it took me straight back to those David Attenborough Mm. documentaries when I was a kid. It was magic. We were capturing imagery, sometimes of species that hadn't been seen by traditional methodology for 15 years. So we were capturing these beautiful photographs of even bait balls of fish being hunted underneath by dolphins and off the top by seagulls, um, oceanic manta rays that don't like humans, they won't come near the traditional methodologies. They're just, you know, the ships and the rigs. You won't see them if you're a marine fauna observer on one of those platforms, but you'll see it with a drone that's not the size of a manned aircraft that's zooming around all over the place because, you know, you can't see it. You know, natural behaviour of the wildlife for me, uh, when I saw that, I was like, we've got something here. And I realised that no one else had ever done it before. And it was when I realised that no one else had ever done it before that I was like, how am I, how are we, how am I, so far ahead of this when for me it's absolutely blindingly obvious that this is what you can use this technology for that project has still not been repeated ever it's um, under confidentiality agreement so I can only talk about it in general terms 
they have they have put some things on the internet that I can talk about, but I can't present it. I haven't been able to publish it. And so I felt for a while there the pain of actually being the first because you scream into a void. No one else understands you. It's this whole bringing everyone on that journey with you. We need to have that precedent before mm-hmm. it's okay. But I love that um, that idea of we're not you're not having an impact on the environment and mm-hmm. yet we get to be a voyeur of it. Mm-hmm. We get to see and therefore inform and understand around what's going on when we're not around. Mm. And then when I realised, you know, that no one else was doing it, I thought, well, if not now, then when? And if not me, then who? Um, and so... <laughs> I, uh, I started. Mum's independence oh, coming up yeah, again. No, see, moth, Kathy. Yeah, it was the. Um, I got to the point though where I was pulling eighteen-hour days because I was literally having to do the job that I had all the billable hours to do, and then I was having to do all the stuff that I didn't have the billable hours to do. And this is where again I felt that curtain of redundancy chasing me through the terror of the timesheet. You know, when I started seeing things slowing down. Um, here in Australia, you start seeing that fear of redundancy going through people again. I was like, my gosh, I am literally on the other side of the planet and I am still experiencing this. Complete instability of any potential career growth because you're totally reliant upon somebody three or four pieces above you in the chain making a decision based on something that they know. And that for me was almost, it was unsustainable. I couldn't be reliant upon these people that we have to try and sell this stuff to that are either not trained or not not um, up to speed or, you know, literally maybe haven't had the time to get up to speed. People are very, very busy. But like, how can you protect your own career path when you're singing a song that no one else knows the words to mm. um, in a language that no one else speaks? And, and it's very difficult and it's a hearts and minds thing to a certain extent, but it's also an economic one. And if you're not making money, you get red flagged for a redundancy and then you're gone. Mm. And so, um, that you know, that to me just seems like a complete... Um, waste of my energy and that I needed to actually break free and then do the things I needed to do on my own volition. Um, So the drone thing for me was, it's a platform technology, it's incredibly powerful, they are already part of our day-to-day lives, they're going to be more and more part of our everyday lives. People need to get their hands on these technologies and they need to play with them and learn them and try them and build confidence in them so they know the questions to ask you know and be informed and do your homework and really get involved with it don't watch the television for half an hour maybe go on youtube and look at you know drones being used for good you know saving lives after earthquakes and delivering food and and doing really good things um and think about how this technology is actually going to affect your job or your life going forwards um so you know, the the whole drones for good space and the consulting work was why I created one of my companies and I took a sidestep out of corporate life and started pushing that particular piece of work. And um, then that led on to more conversations with um, Dr. Karen Joyce, who's my co-founder at She Flies. And so, you know, she and I had a cracking conversation one day and it was... Um, She'd gone into a school. She does drone work on the Great Barrier Reef. So she's been working with NASA and all of these people going out and looking at different ways to monitor the reef. And um, again, drones are a perfect way to monitor the reef. You know, you can send these babies up for 10 or 20 hours, the big ones, and they just collect information and then they come home to you. And there's just, you know, no one else there. And, um, you know, the um, Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, Indigenous um, Empowerment and Relationship Programs are now working with rangers. And so our rangers up and down Queensland have access to these technologies to take imagery of of their environment which is fantastic so Karen was taking all of this into schools and talking about the work she was doing and at primary school she gave a presentation and it was 50-50 boys and girls and then she went to the high school um, and it was all boys apart from two girls who stood very nervously at the back and I said to her hold the phone mate because we were having this chat and there's uh, there's something you can do it's not suitable for work but if you go to Google Images and you put in drones and girls and then you go 
to open up another tab and put in drones and boys and look at the two differences. Mm. The drones and girls is mostly naked flesh. Naked flesh posing with a drone underneath a drone. Um, and the boys, drones and boys is, you know, the toys, the the cops, the, mm. you know, proper use, <laughs> proper use of drones. So I realised we've actually got a really huge problem. So Karen and I put our nets out across our global connections because um, the drone industry is still reasonably small. Everyone reasonably knows each other or knows of each other's names. It's not not huge in the commercial space yet. And we reckoned that just from our basic statistics that drone pilots were fewer than half a percent female. Right. We couldn't find any. They it's... literally weren't there. And so there's me going, right, hang on a sec. This technology is amazing and it's egalitarian and anyone can fly it. There's and, zero reason for and gender. There's zero like reason for zero. any gender yeah. issue with this at all. Yeah. Except there's one, there's a huge one. I mean, you look at things like pilots in the general aviation industry, so like Virgin and Qantas are about 7% female pilots. Um, British Airways has hit double figures. They were the first to hit double figures, 10%. And, you know, when you look at the reasons why Qantas, for example, you used to have to be a bush pilot for a few years before Qantas took you into their stream, and now they're training from an earlier age, so you don't have to have had that, what would be seen to be a typically male um, pastime of flying an aircraft or, mm-hmm. you know, being a bush pilot. It wasn't typically a thing that mums did, for example. Um, but now with Qantas, you can you can start earlier and so you can actually get trained up earlier. Drone racing, it's even worse. So drone racing is going to be worth more than Formula One in the next five years. It's huge. It's coming online as a multi-billion Never dollar industry. Amazing. Mm. Well, we're trying yeah. to bring some to Queensland, so watch that space. Right. Um, and so drone racing, there was a competition in the Middle East with a million-dollar prize that a 14-year-old British lad won, for example. But when I spoke to the European Drone Racing Association, and we've got a nascent uh, industry happening here in, in Australia as well, and we had the Nationals in Queensland um, a couple of weeks ago, um, that they were fewer than 0.005% female, that he could literally name a handful of women out of the thousands that he had on his register. And I'm just like, this is really a problem. And that the thing with the drone racing industry is it's been people tinkering in their sheds with a soldering iron, building their own drones. Now you can buy racing drones. So now they're seeing more women coming in because you can just buy the racing drones mm-hmm. and have a go at it rather yeah. than having to build it as well as fly it. And so there is this, you know, this disbalance, which means that, you know, in the past I've been the only woman in the room. I went to this conference once in Melbourne and there was this person sat in front of me with the most luscious long hair. And I was like, thank gosh, I'm not the only woman in the room when I had to do my presentation it was a bloke oh. <laughs> he had great hair yeah and I see him every now and then at these drone conferences in Melbourne and I keep going there he is the man I thought was a woman but, yeah um, have you yeah. come across any of that kind of bias I mean obviously it was an area that you've just gone into and in some ways seeing these numbers it sounds like I can almost see in your eyes that mm. they've surprised you why don't we have more women is that something you've experienced in your career I knew the numbers were bad but I didn't realize how bad they were I thought, oh, maybe, you know, 20%, 10%, not less than 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what do you think is behind that? Again, it's the, it's the pathways to it, right? So one of the things we've learned with she flies is that you really need to separate the girls from the boys to allow the girls to have the confidence to try things. So she flies has been set up as a confidence builder. It's not, it's using drones as a bit of bait on a hook, but effectively it's about confidence to try new things around technology. What we've been told by teachers is, and what we've read from the literature, is that girls will take a back seat and the boys will take over during any type type of tech class. I don't know if that's because of, you know, game playing, you know, like, you know, your Xbox 60, 360s or whatever, or your Playstations or whatever. Are they ever marketed to women? Are they even in gender neutral colours? This is where, you know, unconscious bias is kicking in. So, you know, some of the drone companies that I talk to and and work with, I've said to them, you do realise all of your packaging is gender skewed to boys. Oh no, it's just white and black. And uh," and I'm like, no, it's not gender neutral. 
and and you know have you ever even marketed to women and girls oh we've never even thought about marketing to women and girls I'm like well you're missing 50% of your potential pool of people that will buy your gear mm. DJI have done a really good um, job in the, in China they they've provided half price training courses for women for example because they recognize that that women will buy and are very good at flying drones and they that's a massive market for them and so they recognized it from a corporate point of view that it was worth their while to actually target so the DJI Mavic when it came out the first advert they had there was targeted as a woman who was in an office block in America going on holiday and she was bored in her office block and then she went on holiday with her Mavic and she had the best time and she was streaming video back to her friends who were teachers showing the kids where she was visiting in the world and she was taking great selfies on this you know jet ski with the drone flying behind her and and it was a woman that was doing it and so for me that wasn't shocking but for a lot of people that was actually a bit shocking for them that it was a woman-led advert um but uh, we're, st- yeah, we're still getting there. As to whether I've taken any personal slack, I, I, I'd say I probably, I probably have. And I've got good friends that watch my back. And someone said to me the day someone was blarneying on about me something, la la. It was a few years ago. It was probably after the Telstra Awards, tall poppy syndrome and all that jazz. And she turned around to him and she said, if her name was Charles and not Catherine, would you actually care? And apparently he's never said a bad word about me again. Amazing. And, and you know, sometimes I remember, you know, we look at things like, you know, we have to do blind auditions for orchestras now so make sure that they pick the right musicians, not mm. based on gender. They have to do, you put your initials down instead of your name down on CVs, for example. Um, and we still have a problem with unconscious bias. Um, and uh, confirmation bias, I'd suggest, is even worse, actually, than unconscious bias. Um, but um, Absolutely, because we have a particular thing in mind and then we mm-hmm. look for everything that confirms that and it's... It's so ingrained. My children, I have a son who's nine and a daughter who's seven. And we were only talking just last night looking at ads and we just had this conversation around which ads are okay and which ones are not around gender stereotypes and what's um, what's okay. And I was so blown away that most of the ads are going, no, 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 that one's okay. And I'm like, let's switch. Like, yeah. what if that was a female? What if that was a male that yeah. was, you know, cooking dinner and getting the food from the shopping market and not the other way around? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what if it's not mum? What if it's not another way around? But, and I think unconscious bias is unconscious and all of us have it. It's not just that it's about, you know, men have it and they're the ones that are blind to it. Women oh, no. are as well, as you say, we're not putting up our hands. We're not, um, you know, young girls at school are, are holding themselves back for whatever kind of reason. Mm. Um, so I love that, yeah, as you say, she flies is very much confidence rather than, mm. I mean, using technology as the pathway to do that. So how can people get involved or... Yeah, well, we've yeah. got lots of things going on. So with She Flies, we train boys and co-ed classes as well when the teachers ask us to and there's bursaries there and, and grants to pay for us to come into the school. So we don't not train boys or men. In fact, one of our instructors that we took on was a, a bloke and that was all based on merit of the application form and he happened to be in the top 10, so he made it through to the top 10. Um, and um, the company itself is 50% female and 50% male owned. Um, and what we're doing now is we're branching out because we've recognised that schools um, are, are one thing. But for me, um, I actually feel like we need to talk to the parents. We need to talk to the mums and dads as well. Um, and we need to talk to the teachers. And so the, the, the last thing you want to do when you're doing something like this is turn up to a school, get all the kids excited for half a day and then leave again. And then there's a vacuum 
or it didn't really make any difference. Mm. And so with our grants that we, we had to run some camps across northern Australia, we were actually having a proper social scientist actually do some academic research on the before and after implications of, you know, attitudes towards tech and confidence in the young girls that are coming through those camps. Um, and so we're actually quite serious about making sure what we deliver is actually going to allow some positive change. Um, and so one of the things we're looking at now is actually organising um, weekend events or, or on a Sunday that, that mums and dads can come along with their kids and actually take part in a drone day rather than it having to be at their school, for example. I'm looking at putting together some women drone and wine evenings. Now probably, you've got me. Probably <laughs> starting here in Brisbane. <laughs> Love it. Um, so I'm just looking at spaces now and uh, costings to see what that would actually look like. Um, because I feel like whenever I go and give presentations, because I do quite a bit of speaking work, and so when I go and talk to women in business and I sort of say, who here's got a drone? And you get the odd person that puts their hand up because they've got a drone company or they, their husband's got a drone or someone will say, well, I bought a drone for my husband. And I'm like, no, you bought a drone for yourself. You just let your husband use it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like that Chewbacca mom woman. She was like, this is mine. They can borrow it, but it belongs to me, mm. the Chewbacca mask. Um, and so for me, I often say my challenge to you is at the end of today to go via the Apple store and buy a drone or go to JB Hi-Fi and buy a drone um, and treat yourself and have some fun and follow the rules and just do it. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a need for, I think, that confidence around trying new things, um, especially when it comes to tech things or things that we're constantly told we're not good at. Women are constantly told we're not good at driving. We're constantly told we're not, oh, it's a woman driver, oh, she throws like a girl, all that kind mm. of stuff, right? That is common lexicon still. And I've heard my own managers in the past in previous jobs even use those sorts of expressions right directly in front of me with complete ignorance of the fact they're even saying them. They're not even being malicious. They just mm. had no idea. So we're up against it. Um, and so with She Flies, for example, it was the see it to be it thing. So Karen and I are really steaming full, you know, full ahead. It will be called She Flies because it was created by two women. Um, and, you know, we had one comment on Facebook. What about He Flies? And I was just like, oh, you really don't get it. Yeah, You really don't get it. It's, there's a disbalance here that we are trying to we are trying to get that seesaw back and by we have to be loud about what we're doing otherwise we're not going to get yeah. momentum. Let's get to the point where we don't have to put a gender exactly. in front of it but we need to get to that point we first. We need to get to that point first. Some people really don't get that, do they? Mm. So, um, so yeah, so She Flies, we're growing, we're expanding, we're offering lots of different things and you can connect with us through our Facebook page and we're about to relaunch our website. Um, with that, we'll have an online learning management system so people can actually access lesson plans or things to do with the kids on a weekend or, you know, and there'll be some prize draws and membership options and things like that for people to get involved with but um but yeah keep your eye out and sign up for the newsletters because then when we get these things organized you know for the women women uh women drone and wine, wine. i'm all yeah, over we'll have the drone delivering it. you your wine yeah how good is that <laughs> so yeah watch this space there's a, a lot going on it's you know honestly back in march I, I literally registered world of drones congress i say i my, my partners and i registered world of drones congress and then uh, my partners and I registered um, She Flies within the space of two weeks. And at that point, I felt a bit of a tectonic shift because it was real. I was like, this is actually real. We're going to back this. We're, we're going to do we're it. We're actually going to do it. We're going to jump in. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting. Really, really exciting. And nerve-wracking and uncertain and all mm. of that. But that's part of the curiosity of technology, but also work and life and the next thing that we do. Now, you've been recognised in a number of different ways over the last couple of years. Mm. In 2015, you were the national winner for the Australian, um, for the Telstra um, Business Women's Award. Uh, you've been recognised in Westpac's Top 100 uh, Women of Influence, mm. um, alongside a whole range of other awards and acknowledgements for the work that you've done. Often, 
again, and you mentioned before the tall poppy syndrome, I think here in Australia, but even particularly for women, I think often what we do is a lot of work mm-hmm. um, and it's still looked down and frowned upon in terms of actually backing the work that we've done or being acknowledged for what we've done. Um, what what was it about those awards that I guess whether it helped gave you confidence or actually moved, um, like being acknowledged, what is it that actually helped you in your career? So the first the first one I went for was the Boss Young Executives one. And the reason why I wanted to do that one is because as part of your assessment, you spent a day in an official assessment thing. Um, I think the company was called DDI or something like that down in Sydney. And you literally sit for a day and you work as if you are a president of a robotics company. And you have to fix dodgy deals in South America and you have to, you know, leave memos and hold meetings and discipline an employee, which I was terrible at. I'm not very good at disciplining. I'm very good at trying to find a solution. (laughs) Um, And I got marked down on that, actually. And then um, actually after that assessment, you were then evaluated by a panel. And I really like this because I had never, since my PhD Viva, I'd not actually had any kind of professional, professionally organised professional assessments back. I mean, you, you get your work assessments, but they're all subjective to office politics and, you know, whether people like you or not. Whereas this was actually cold, hard. We're going to analyse her performance. We don't know who she is from a bar of soap and we're just going to work out whether she's good or not. And um, the feedback I got back from that was actually, I, I actually cried after the feedback meeting was over. I mean, the guy sort of said to me, look, we evaluated you one level down. We should have evaluated you at COO, not a president. Like we should have put you up one because we couldn't stretch you hard enough at a couple of places. And I was just like, well, that's really nice to know. Um, and I was just so gobsmacked by that, that it was... Um, it's, it's, I don't know what it is. Sometimes we need other people to tell us. I, I don't know what that is, where that comes from. Um, maybe it's a will for us not to be seen to be arrogant. We're not allowed to be confidence and arrogance, right? So you're allowed mm. to have a bit of confidence, but not too much. You're allowed to, you're allowed to uh, recognise that you've got some skills, but not too loud. Mm. Like, you know, you're allowed to um, try and in- instigate some change, but, you know, don't don't stand there and, you know, take it don't off yourself. Don't, ooh, yeah. what are you wanting to do it for yourself, you know, kind of thing. Well, I was always a big believer of, um, you know, you see it, you own it. And, you know, I always had a lot of positive feedback from mentees saying to me that I was an inspiration to them and that I should put myself forward and get acknowledgement and spread the word and all this kind of stuff. And so the Telstra Business Women's Awards was a huge undertaking. And anyone that's gone through that form, going through that form in itself, um, you know, it takes a few days. You have to get references in from, from lots of different people and you have to prove your mettle and you have to, you know, have some, you know, good backing. And, but you also have to holistically look back at why, like some of the questions we've talked about today, like why do you care? Like why do you, why do you even bother doing this stuff? And um, so that for me, you know, I put in for it and the interview happened when I was actually travelling. Um, I was actually in San Francisco and it was a really bad Skype call that dropped out a few times and I thought, well, whatever, I've just completely blown that and that's nice, whatever. Great experience, thanks, whatever. Came back from the trip around the world and literally the morning I flew in from London, so that evening was the Queensland Awards. And um, my HR manager, Carmel, who'd um, put me forward for the award and and actually forced me to click send just like half an hour before it closed because I wasn't going to click send. Um, And she she called me and she said, have you submitted it yet? And I went, no, she won't do it right now. And so I had to. I had to literally go online (laughs) and literally submit it right then and there. Um, So she was there with me and the, the, the opening of the Telstra Awards started talking about innovation. And she looked at me and she went, you've got this, you know. And I was like... No, not really. Look at all the amazing people. I actually think 2015 Telstra Business Women's Awards was probably one of the best group of, I have to say, maybe I'm biased. <laughs> you know, some cracking individuals that um, that I just, you know, I'm not worthy. Um, you know, Fiona Jost and the work she's doing up in Cape York is just life-changing, life-saving, amazing stuff. And there was me flying drones around looking at turtles, you know. 
And so, yeah, when I won the private and corporate at Queensland, I thought, that's it, job's good and nice. Thank you. I really enjoy it. That's really great. That's going to really shore me up and uh, give me great confidence to ask for a pay rise and, uh, you know, all those things that we don't have a lot of confidence mm. to do. And um, anyway, then I won Queensland. And I literally walked on stage and Jane Caro was there. And I was like, am I, am I dreaming or is this real? Can you just punch me in the face, please, Jane? And she was laughing. She's like, no, it's real. And I completely fluffed the speech thing and went off on one because I was so jet lagged. And I'm apparently used as the example of what not to do oh. as to how long a speech should go for at the Telstra Awards. Leave your legacy, right? Because, yeah, seven or eight minutes of me blarneying on, you know, off script, on script and whatever. Um, and um, yeah, I was totally shocked. I was totally shocked. And... Um, and then, you know, I went on to win the National Corporate Award. And again, I was just like, my life is turning in a way that if I, again, it's that feeling of if I don't jump now, if I don't do this now, I'm go- if I don't make something of this, I'm going to regret that. Mm. And you see a lot of, you know, uh, the awards had been running for 21 years at that time, but I wasn't familiar with any of the 21 women that had previously won either my section or their work. So I was like, where are these women going? So they're winning, winning these awards... And then where are they going? There's, there's a couple of them that have sort of, you know, like, um, you know, um, Carolyn Cresswell, for example, mm. with Carmen's Muesli, absolutely massive success. She applied for the awards 12 times, apparently, before she won them. So the tenacity of that woman was already well known in the business industry. Of course, Carmen's is a great Australian brand and she's doing some great work. So I knew of her, um, but not really of any of the others. And I was like, well, you know, you don't want to win something like this and then just let it disappear into the wind. You want to win something like this and then actually go, right, I'm going to use this and I'm going to use everything that it brings me and I'm going to change what I'm doing because what I'm doing trapped inside this corporate paradigm is strangling me and what I want to do actually needs to be free of that and back to that independence thing again. Mm. So, you know, concrete boots that my PhD was at the time gave me the wings to get to Australia. The fear of going for awards, um, you know, was then lifted by the fact that I'd actually won them, which I think shocked quite a few of my enemies, which was always great. Yeah, that's always um, It's always nice to have people going, how on earth did she do that? <laughs> I'm thinking, well, if you just decided to take your head out your, wherever you've deposited it and actually look at the world and do something of your own volition, maybe you will go forth to do something yeah. <laughs> other than just complain about other people. Um, but um, the tall poppy syndrome thing was a huge issue for me and unlucky I'm a six foot one blonde and I really don't care um, and um, being British born as well tall poppy for me was always a compliment so I listened to it with British ears not Australian ones love it and uh, I just uh, henceforth you know just continue on and, and keep doing what I'm doing and if it works it works and if it doesn't then I, d- I change tack um, but the Telstra Awards for me were a complete litmus uh, test they were a complete changing point they were an absolute tectonic shift in what I was going to do and what I could do and the networks that I was then put into you see the awards are one thing it's the networks that come with it the recognition that comes with it I had people that I'd been trying to get hold of for six months you know sending LinkedIn requests and stuff suddenly they were calling me Mm. and that does not happen if you just write a nice email that happens when you win something when you get recognised for something and unfortunately I think especially for women especially in technology you almost need that third party external recognition for yourself to get validated you don't get validated on your work alone you still get judged very much on how you look and you know an award like that though I've sat in meetings before honestly Ali where I've sat there and they've gone is Dr Ball arriving anytime soon and I'm like (laughs) I'm right here darling right here right in front of you Um, and so you know 
I have been up against it and I really hope for better for, for the next generation coming through. I don't see it changing as fast as it should, though, quite frankly. And I think you're right. Like, it is... Um, I love your story of your HR person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we almost need that that person that's encouraging us, that's almost not letting us get away with not putting ourselves forward and then um, not resting on the acknowledgement either. Mm-hmm. I think... Uh, um, and you may have heard this as well, where people, they might get recognised in whatever way. And then almost talk that down mm. and just go, oh, no, 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 oh, no, 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 no that was, was just, nothing. Was Whereas actually yeah. there's something, there's tenacity about going, okay, I'm going to use this and I'm going to use it as a platform, not only for me but for the impact that I can have mm. um, on the people people around us. Mm. And um, so, yeah, if you're out there listening, if you've got an award or anything, in fact, you, if you don't, you really probably should be, be looking and putting forward. yourself out there. Start with the small ones if you don't want the big national ones. I mean, the thing is I then got picked up by the newspapers and got got some of those, you know, Queensland people of influence things. Mm. 25 women in robotics led to me actually getting potentially headhunted by Google, for example. Um, and, you know, that was an interesting conversation. And then, um, you know, I went for the Westpac 100 Women of Influence because I was like, right, I was evaluated on what I was doing for Telstra Awards when I was sat in a very different space. Now I'm I'm doing my own independent stuff. And so I wanted to actually say, can I still get recognised? Am I still on target? You know, am I still doing enough? And luckily I won. The woman, uh, well, I got into the top final bit. The woman that won my section is a wonderful woman who's curing cancer. So you sort of go, I'm not worthy. <laughs> You're curing cancer, Jennifer. And I will just stand here and talk about flying drones into Syria for food aid delivery. But you just go out, you know. Oh, but they're the not, of you the know, women you in can't those compare. Oh. But, and as you say, no, you there's... Um, there's, She's there's brilliant, just Jennifer. so much going on that we're not even aware mm. of. And so no. I think that's part of the conversation too no. and adding to it. You know, we um, don't get enough press time. That's the other thing, you know. Women are not, our, our successes are not talked about enough in the media, in the press, on the news. Um, I was watching a documentary the other day uh, called Chasing Coral and it's a wonderful documentary on Netflix and it's all about how our coral reefs are being affected by hot water and they were trying to film it in ways to try and understand the coral biology more. Well, I was 20 minutes into this doco and there hadn't been a single female voice and I was like, oh no, I am going to sit through a manal version of a coral documentary. Luckily, there was one female scientist that then came as a voice. Um, and I think towards the end, there was a second female scientist. But it was a male-dominated mm. thing. Again, all of the tech team was male. The, all, the directory, all the director team was male. And the production team, I think, had one woman in it. And I was like, again, you know, marine biology has actually got a lot of female representation in it. Um, there's a lot of women that work in marine biology, especially here in Queensland, where it was partially filmed. And I was like, where are all those voices? So, you know, we still haven't got it. And it's not benign. I, no. Our daughters see it and that's what's, yeah, so frustrating. And it People have said to me in the past, if you looked a bit more like a scientist, you'd be more believable. Oh, because I don't wear glasses and I'm not yeah. in a lab coat. And it's like, oh, break away. It's that draw a scientist test. Have you ever done that? Yeah, well, I've test. seen you, you put seen that, put, right? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I love the DAS test because everyone will draw Albert Einstein. So the DAS test is draw a scientist test. So you can do this with your kids to check their unconscious bias at any time. But what you do is you um, ask them to draw a scientist. And you can do this with your friends at Christmas if you're bored. Draw a scientist. And normally what you get is um, Albert Einstein. But you very rarely get Marilyn Monroe. And she was a drone engineer in World War Two. Right. So... There Google Marilyn Monroe and drones and you'll see it. It was her first ever photo shoot. It's fantastic. Amazing. Mm. Fascinating. So, yeah, we all need to <laughs> look at our own inner scientists. <laughs> so um, you were mentioning before, I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in is how do we live this kind of standout life amongst the busyness? And um, I think what, what I'm finding people are really interested in is how do you get clear on what's the stuff that you say yes to and what you say no to? And particularly even more so when you are actually starting to get to where you want to go to and you're being acknowledged and... 
um, recognised for the work that you do, often the requests come in a lot stronger. Mm. You find yourself pulled in a million different directions. How have you navigated that? Has that been your experience? And oh. have you, how have you navigated that? Oh. It's really funny when you win an award like the Telstra Awards, especially when you take out one of the national ones, everyone suddenly thinks that you're on like half a million dollar retainers for three or four major corporates and therefore you have lots of time to go and do things like you're a beauty queen or something. You've got this entourage that's going to help you organise going around the country and just talking to people for free. And I I don't know what it was. Maybe it was because I didn't feel... This is a good question, actually. So, you know, as a psychologist or someone looking looking outside in, when I won those awards, I then felt like I had to earn them. Mm. Like, I'd won them, but I couldn't acknowledge the fact that I'd won them. I'd won them, and then I felt like, well, now I better I earn it. prove it. it. Then now I was I better good go out for there it. And, yeah. So I literally, in 2016, was saying yes to everything. I was meeting people left, right and centre to talk about their ideas. I was giving away my IP. I was approaching people for funding left, right and centre who were then sitting on things, then trying to do things themselves, and then messing it up because they didn't use my advice, you know, and they spent thousands and have lost loads of money and, you know, all this, because they didn't hire me for half a day. It's like, um, I burnt out almost by the end of last year. By the time it came around to, you know, the Noosa conference in the Women Focus, I was already to a point of innovation and exhaustion and I didn't know how we were going to make rent because startup life is you know you bootstrap you literally I didn't dye my hair and my hair was growing my hair out I looked awful at a time when you still need to look pristine because you're still trying to sell yourself and I was exhausted and I was getting fat because I was drinking too much and I was flying everywhere so you know it's glass of wine in the club then glass of wine on the plane then oh another little wine with dinner because they like to sneak you one and then you have a drink when you get to the hotel and you do that three or four times a week and you're literally binge drinking but you don't realize it because Mm. you're not binge drinking with friends you're just drinking wine you know as you you do so the first thing for me this year was that I gave up booze which for me is hard. I'm not. A, I'm not one of these people that go. Oh, I'll just be a weekend drinker. I'm like, nah. Weekend for me. What's that? You know, I, I, I'm not a person that can open a bottle and then just, you know, have a small 125 mil serve of that lovely Shiraz from Western Australia. I'll be like, I'll have a second one, and then I'll have a third one, and then you and your husband kill the bottle, and yeah. you're like, what have I just done? <laughs> and it's Monday, and then we'll and then you know all that. Yeah. You know, then you're shoving toast into your face because you, you know, because you're hungry because the blood sugar's mess. Anyway, so it's this terrible cycle. So, um, so I gave up alcohol because I was flying so much. I was actually getting sick when I was flying, and it was because I was dehydrating myself. And so I'd be waking up in the middle of the night really unwell in these places like Fiji and places where I was having to do speaking work the next day. And I was not my, I was not 100%. And these people were paying for me to to be there doing speaking work. And I was like, I can't, I can't keep doing that. Like, I need to be completely on on point and like my best self when I'm doing this stuff. But I'd gone around so much, especially here in Queensland. People wanted to talk to me about their ideas, this, that, and the other. And I was happy to do that. And I, you know, it's cost me thousands some of the stuff that I've done. I've literally spent money on people, bought products off people, or literally spent my time and not build them because it was free. And so now I've got a thing where I won't meet people for coffee, which sounds really harsh, except when you think about it, you've got 20 minutes to get to the cafe, 10, 20 minutes to get to the cafe. Then you're there for 30 to 40 minutes, if not an hour, if it rolls on. Then you've got another 20 to 30 minutes to get back. So that's two hours. So if you're charging $250 an hour for consulting, would you go for that coffee with that person and leave $500 on that table? Because that's exactly what you're doing. 
when you're doing things like that. Mm. And it eats up your working day. So when you then try to make phone calls to people, it's five, six, seven o'clock at night. It's rude. You can't call people at that time of night, you know, after six, really. I don't like to call people after 4.30, for example. So, you know, I was like, this has got to stop. And it was it happened at a time where I met this chap um, and he wanted to talk to me about, about an idea and he was attached to an innovation hub. So I thought, well, maybe there's some consulting work in here or maybe a bit of equity or I might get involved with their product and whatever. And at the end of the hour with him, I said, so how can I help you? And he said, oh, I just wanted to have a chat. Okay, and when enough. he said that, I was, yeah, that was it. I was like, I'm not doing this again. Yeah, I literally can't. I can't keep bleeding yeah. out like this. I was almost like, if I stood here in the street and just slashed my arms, would you all just bleed from it? <laughs> like, would you all just take a good sucking mm. of my blood? Because that's how I felt. So I'd really gone to that point of I need to be. I'm independent. Start up. I need to take the you know the the wonderful um, wave of uh, you know wave of media and stuff that I'd had after the awards, and I need to turn it into something personal brand management I need to get out there I need to say yes everyone asks you to do everything for free um, especially when it's around you know charities and stuff like that and of course I said yes to that stuff mm. because I'd be like well it's a charity you know I yeah. care about this it's, you know but there's a you know they're paying the wait staff the wait staff are earning money mm. for pouring the coffee but you're not earning mm. a penny for standing there and talking about your life and giving pieces of yourself to people and I'm like, I can't, I can see myself doing that when I've got more money and more stability. And I still do do free speaking work and free things for people, but I've had to limit how much I actually do. So I went with a professional speaking agency, Saxton, who can have those awkward conversations on my behalf and also work out, you know, what's best for me and what's not and negotiate things for me and organise things for me. It's been wonderful that they took me on. Saxton really have been a massive lifesaver for me because I used my speaking money to bootstrap the five businesses that I now sit over. Um, but the travelling for the speaking work as well, being unfortunately based in Brisbane, most of it's not in Brisbane. It's in Melbourne and it's in Sydney. Um, people have said to me I should move to Melbourne. I'm like, with the weather down there, I'd rather move back to London, to be honest. No. I love Melbourne, don't get That's me right. wrong. I love but we just visit. don't tell people how amazing no. winter in Brisbane no. actually is. Winter in Brisbane is the same as the summer in England. Oh, it's amazing. I love it. Yeah. I love the climate here in winter. It's just gorgeous. But I love but how yeah. you need to set that boundary. Otherwise, oh. resentment kicks in exactly as you described and you get the frustration. But well, the moment you yeah. set that boundary, it becomes really clear. I I agree in terms of the, the freebies um I was actually listening to Claire Bowditch. She was talking about this, and, and particularly for women, I was getting asked to come along and speak at conferences to inspire women, to tell them to, you know, um, really value themselves and really step up. And then I was being asked to do it for free. Uh-huh. Um, and I remember, yeah, actually seeing a Facebook post by Claire Bowditch where she said, enough is enough. Mm. Um, the best um, role model I can be is to say no mm-hmm. to that and that if you want my time, you need to value my time. Yeah. Um, but that needs to come from us. It's nerve-wracking though, isn't it? It's really nerve-wracking because what, no. if they, what if they stop asking? Wow. What if we become insignificant? Wow. So. Well, the point is that the people that, the people that, ask, the people that will ask you will, will have money. There's stipends, there's bursaries, there is. Even if it's 500 bucks, 200 bucks, there's something there, right? Mm. So I think that uh, the ones that will never pay you, they need to fall to the wayside to a certain extent it is hard it's really tough I lost sleep over it a couple of times but then I, I, I rolled over in bed and I looked at my husband sleeping next to me and I thought he's not getting the best of me because I'm giving it to everybody else like you know and I need to make sure that I spend enough time nurturing our relationship you know as much as running around the country doing things for other people and he would be quite stern with me sometimes in that you're not doing it for free and I'm like okay 
yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to do it for free. Yeah. Um, and again, it was um, I needed that external support to really validate what I knew was right in my gut. Um, and yeah, like looking at people like Claire, I mean, Claire Powell, she's an amazing woman. Mm. Um, I would never ask her to do anything for free because, you know, it's. but the funny thing is there's still people that will do it for free. There are people that have like, you know, the six-figure salaries and stuff like that. They can quite happily represent their businesses for free because they're getting paid by someone. It's those of us that are self-employed that we really can't actually afford to well, do I that. Well, I think it's, it is the clarity of setting boundaries for yourself so that when you do say yes, mm. it comes with a genuine absolutely mm-hmm. and it's a gift as opposed to it's actually costing me something. And there's things you get back from it too. So, for example, like, you know, Women in Focus at Noosa, for example, meeting the women there and experiencing that that whole thing for me was, was worth being there, like, tenfold. Absolutely, I'd be there again in the drop of a hat because the experience itself was money, something money couldn't buy. You know, I, I was able to, you know be in a place and talk to people and actually relax a little bit and actually express a few ideas and, and you know, and beautiful Noosa as well. And um, I just relished that particular opportunity. So there have been odds the and currencies, sods of, right. yeah, yeah. Of, of what does this actually mean? So you have to look at it not necessarily just from a financial or fiscal benefit, but, you know, would I pay to do this or is this something that's going to raise my profile um, or are they just asking for it for free because other women have always said yes. It sounds yeah. a bit harsh, doesn't it? And again, it's, I don't feel comfortable talking about money. I still, you know, and I advise women, the best gift you can ever give yourself is financial independence. I finished killing my credit cards about a month ago and I'm finally debt-free and it's taken me 38 years. I had that credit card for 20 years and I never got rid of it, ever. I'd never managed to get rid of it. And I have, I finally got rid of it. So now I'm saving, I have savings. What is this? Yeah. <laughs> savings. It's a whole new world. Whole Look new at thing. that. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah. Well, you're, a, you're on the frontier of the next, uh, the next shift and change, which may take your savings away from you. <laughs> <laughs> um, in that you're going to be a mum, yes. um, which is exciting and congratulations. Yeah, yes. and scary all at once. Completely planned but unplanned. I ah. actually I actually registered World of Drones and She Flies and got pregnant in the space of three weeks. That's life, right? Which is <laughs> what happens when you're busy making <laughs> plans, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And we were talking, obviously talking a little bit about boundaries. Do you have, and this is one of those kind of great unknowns, right? Mm. Because who knows? And and your journey will be yours and, and beautiful and messy and all of that at the same time. Do you have some ideas about what boundaries you might put into place um, when you become a mum? Mm. Well, the best thing that I have right now is that because my husband and I are both self-employed and we both work fully flex and we both work from home, I don't have to worry about what I was worrying about a few years ago. I worried, I I always worried that I would have to pop out the kids quick before I get too old to do so. And that then because I was the major earner, then my husband would raise the children and I would be forever the guilty mother that was never there, that missed everything. Um, And I really worried about that. And I don't have to worry about that anymore because I can literally do everything I'm doing. And I say this completely naively because I've never had children before. But Jeremy and I have, and he's my, he's my best friend and he's my, you know, business partner. He's my bad boy for life, that man. I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing without him doing what he does. He and I work so well as a partnership uh, on all levels. Um, it's, it's just, uh, it's been a complete life changer for me meeting him. Um, and he's more than happy. He's one of these chaps that doesn't mind that I'm the one that's earning the money. Um, and I've seen a number of my friends' relationships go south when the financial tables have turned as to who's earning more and you just really hope that that stuff doesn't happen anymore but um, but no I'm feeling quite confident and comfortable in that luckily I had my worst morning sickness over Easter and Anzac Day so it was quieter anyway which was uh, first trimester for me is the worst thing in the world best kept secret in the western mm. world quite frankly I have never I've had malaria and this was worse than that right <laughs> I have never known anything like it yeah because um, you can't do anything to make yourself feel better mm. 
And um, yeah, I had some really quite dark moments during week eight and week nine. Let's put it that way. But you um, may never go there if you knew about oh. it. Though I think that's <laughs> we keep it a secret. But you don't know what's going to happen as well. Though. There's so yeah. many unknowns. You could be one of these people that is. You know, I'm I'm so great, grateful that they exist. Women that don't feel that problem. You know. And then I look at. I met this woman and she was like, Oh no, I had hyperemesis. I was you know dry retching in the delivery suite. And I'm just like, I don't think I can do this for nine months. Mm. Like I literally can't earn the money. I had to cancel so many speaking gigs. I lost thousands of dollars back in April and May because I literally couldn't get out of bed to do work, let alone get on a flight to New. Zealand to do work. Um, and so anyway, I look at it now, what I'm doing and how the businesses are earning. And what I'm really strategizing around now is this thing that we all crave as self-employed people, which is passive income. So I've now built up three out of the, the, the three out of the, well, there's five companies, but one is a book, Gumption Trigger. So that's pretty much, you know, I've sold all the copies that I had of that now. So that's kind of just sitting there waiting awesome. to see what we want to do with it. But that's fine. Then, um, you know, so remote research ranges with the consulting work that comes and goes, ebbs and flows, bits and bobs, happy to do bibs, bits and bobs. That's not going to kill me. Then, um, We've got the She Flies programs, which we now have our instructors delivering programs. I don't physically have to deliver programs. I can call people and meet people and have video conferences, you know, with a child attached to the to the bazoom if needs be. And the video conference is just my face up, you know. And I've done conference calls where I've been sat in my pyjamas, quite mm. frankly, just with a nice jacket over the T-shirt on the top, you know. Who knows? Yep. Um, and so, you know, Jeremy is there and is ready and willing. And so we'll work fully flex and get this passive income going around She Flies. And World of Drones Congress, we're, you know, we're already preparing for next year's now, for First years in Brisbane here in Brisbane for for three or four days at the end of August, beginning of September. So that's going to be awesome. Mm. Um, and again, once you, it's really funny. It's taken two years, and people always said this to me. It takes two years. You know, your first year is like bootstrap, bootstrap, bootstrap. Can't afford to eat. Going back to lentils and rice, seriously, and not dyeing your hair and stuff yeah. like that. Right? Gosh. Going back to student life, yeah. student living. What did I eat when I was a student? I remember tomato ketchup on bread, mint sauce on bread, um, baked beans on toast, baked beans on potatoes, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. And we went back to eating like that. Again. It was terrible. Anyway, I didn't get any thinner. Let's put it <laughs> And I was still affording to buy wine. So hang on a sec. So that, yeah. But yeah, so then the second year now, we started warming up really nicely. So some of the ways I'm looking at diversifying some of our income is with She Flies, we're working with David Bromley and Yugi Bromley, the artist mm. down in Melbourne. And we're looking at how do we actually collaborate to produce beautiful things that fundraise for she flies at the same time as making money for you know artistic collaborations so you know talking to a number of different people about how do we create beautiful things that actually bring money in um, and also once we get the momentum going how do we actually just allow you know the birthday parties and the women drone and wine and all of these things to be run by my instructors and it makes profit and you know it pays admin and everything's beautiful and balanced out but it's not me running on that hamster wheel anymore and that's where I'm getting to that's new for me in that I've never this is the weird thing about the independence thing again, yeah? And mm. that I'm letting go of certain things, which is not difficult for me to do. I'm just going through it in a way that I've never done it before. Our, our businesses have created jobs for about 20 people. Like, I've never created jobs for other people before. It's quite magic, actually. Um, watching other people blossom and grow into the opportunities that you sort of say, does anyone want to do this? Anyone interested? And then you get like, you know, seven people will come and say, can I, can I volunteer for you? Can I, can, yeah. I, can I volunteer some time? Can I, you know, I just want to, can you mentor me a bit? You know, and I'm sort of like, wow, there's actually people that will give me their life effectively for a few mm. hours a week. Um, and they won't, they won't want anything back other than to learn or grow or be involved in sort of an internship or voluntary kind of manner. I still believe in paying people though, you see. So I struggle. I can't, I struggle with the idea of volunteers because... Yes, they'll get something, which we evaluate as a non-monetary benefit, but I still feel like I need to pay the minimum wage. And so we're going through this bit of moral dilemma. I still feel like, you know, how many times I volunteered my time is true. And I got a lot from it. It's true. And you grow from it. Absolutely, you do. But I still feel that whole 
you should pay someone if they're going to spend their time working on your project thing. I so, love yeah. that independence of, yeah, it's hard to hand over, but also actually a big independence is having it all handed over. Yeah. Um, and I think for for women, whether you have your own business or, or work in a corporate environment um, or stepping up into a leadership role, it is mm-hmm. that recognition that if you want something done, you don't have to be the one to do it for it to still be great and mm-hmm. awesome and amazing. And that is a big chance of kind of letting letting that go. Yeah. So exciting. Plenty Dang. plenty happening for you. Gosh, it doesn't stop. So I don't watch television anymore, really. Watch a bit of ABC. I watch a bit of SBS World News because that's the best news. And the ABC News is all right. Um, but the SBS World News, I love it. Um, and then a bit, bit of Big Bang Theory every now and then maybe in the odd Netflix documentary. Though I was starting the other day to get into Downton Abbey on Netflix because I never watched Downton Abbey when it first came through. And the original Doctor Who as well, back from 2009, I think, whenever it was, they redid the thing I'm sort of going I haven't got time to do this I've got other things to do so I switch it <laughs> off and then I get back onto my emails and stuff again yeah. I just can't get through my emails or my text messages another thing I did I switched my voicemails off on my phone so you can only send me a text message that's like, a good idea because I, I, I literally that. had at the, in December last year I literally had voicemails from May that yeah. I hadn't even listened to hadn't got to or I'd listened to forgotten I'd listened to it and then hadn't actioned it yeah so I'm getting to that awful stage now where I need a PA but I've not got a surety of regular income yet to actually guarantee a PA job. Yeah, yeah. I love that next... actually, one because um, yeah, I I definitely could put my hand up and be the person that if you leave a voice message, it could be months before I listen to it. Someone's voicemail the other day when I went to leave her a voice message, she said, "If you're listening to this, please don't leave me a voice message because I never listen to them." Cheers. Send me a text. Perfect. And I'm like, yeah, perfect. There's so, a boundary. That's so my, done. yeah, I think that. Um, we are so hyper-connected that though it's incredibly advantageous in that we can work globally, we can Skype into London, we can beam into LA, we can do all of these things. At the same time, people will expect me to get back to them in a week. <laughs> Not going to happen, really, unless you're like right in my face and I need yeah. to deal with it. It gets delayed for weeks. And it's not because I'm being rude. I literally, my capacity, especially now being pregnant as well, I'm noticing my capacity is diminishing. I'm now only, what was it Jeremy said to the other day? You're only like three people now, Catherine, not five. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, so, yeah, my capacity to, to run around and back, you know, bend over for people and get things for people, like, uh, it's going because I've got other things to prioritise yeah, now. And, which it needs to be. Yeah, my sleep is one. I, you know, and I sleep very well. I just need to make sure I have enough sleep. Yeah. So, no, life's very exciting. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Uh, so when I you know, offer that up to you, what does it mean for you to live a standout life? The only thing I'm ever actually any good at is being who I am. And I think many times in my life I've tried to be what other people wanted me to be or I've tried to fit into a system that I thought I needed to fit into when in fact actually my biggest strength was not actually doing that. Um, and so for me, the idea of a standout life is the only way I can live. And the only way I can live, you know, now is to actually be the independent, loud, belligerent, um, kind, open and generous person that, that people tell me that I am. So um, to live a standout life for me is you've got to find your true north and you've got to follow it. And if you're not happy, change. Because you can. I never thought I could. And I, I have. I mean, I, I look back 10 years ago or even 20 years ago and would I as a child or a teenager have looked at where I am now and actually ever predicted this? Absolutely not. But that's where the magic lies, is around the corners that you can't see. Love it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank Thank you you so much, Catherine. It's been such a delight. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real-world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. 
you can grab a copy by heading to my website www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.